If you have your bulletin today, I want to encourage you to take out your little uh, sermon guide. I think that'll really help you today. As you can see, I want to talk to you about the symbolic meaning of numbers. Now, I, I had a long debate with myself and with the Lord as to whether I actually wanted to preach a message on the meaning of of numbers. You know, originally, I plan to um, deal with the numbers as they arise in the text. But sometimes those meanings can seem rather arbitrary or, or even contrived. You know, it's like you can make something mean whatever you want it to mean when you're in a, in a limited uh, area in the Scriptures, and sometimes it seems that way to people. Uh, but let me assure you that in the Bible... Numbers are powerful symbols, and they do have specific meanings. And that is especially true in the book of Revelation. A huge portion of the symbolism and the communication that occurs in the book of Revelation comes to us through numbers. And and my goal today is to try to give you a sense of, of how important numbers are, and of the the consistency of their use throughout Scripture. God is the author of two great books. The first book is the book of creation, the heavens above us, the earth beneath, the the world around us. The second book is is the one that I I hold in my hand, uh, the Scriptures, uh, the the Holy Bible. And, And one of the most distinctive characteristics of God in his creation is his love for numbers and and mathematical laws. You know, people didn't invent mathematics. God did. We simply recognize it and and try to uh, understand it and use it. Uh, But wherever you find God at work, you will find characteristic in his work the issue of numbers and mathematical laws. And in and, and creation, um, God, we see, is a, is a God of order. He's a God of logic. He's a God of consistency. And that's one of the reasons the world around us is so predictable, because it's, it's God created that way. Mathematical laws govern the entire universe. They govern the, all the stars of the galaxy, uh, our solar system, the sun, the moon, uh, the earth, and all the planets. And those same laws govern the, the weight and the motion and the substance of, of the atomic world, the molecular world, the, the chemical world. They're, they're at work in, in crystals and, and snowflakes. And, and everywhere you look, you find God at work in these mathematical laws, in the, in the work of God. Every cell in your body divides and multiplies. There are chromosomes that function with incredible mathematical precision. And, and, and this reality was first observed by the ancient Greeks. There was a, a, there was a, there was a, a sense in which they began to see that mathematical laws undergird all that God has created 
in the world. One of the most famous Greek philosophers was a man by the name of Pythagoras. Uh, he was born in about 580 B.C. And, and uh, he developed, of course, the Pythagorean theorem. And most people associate that with, you know, with triangles, with finding the area or the hypotenuse of a, of a right triangle. But what is more important than, than that is that Pythagorean theory or philosophy says that there is a mathematical relationship between all things in creation. Aristotle summed it up this way. He said, number is the principle of all things, and the organization in the universe is a harmonic system of numerical ratios. Another Pythagorean uh, philosopher said, number is great and perfect and omnipotent, and the principle and guide of divine and human life. Now, the Pythagorean uh, uh, philosophers based their arguments on two primary observations. They observed the planets and they looked at the musical uh, notes or in the in the scale, uh, and, and both they could see these uh, regular mathematical intervals that were that they were able to discern as they observed and listened. And according to their famous theory, the seven planets. Now that's before. Uh, Uranus and Pluto, were the seven golden cords of the heavens, and the whole universe is in mathematical harmony. You know, as an artist, I use uh, Pythagorean uh, principles in using the golden ratio. Golden ratio tells us where we place things in a composition, in a, in a painting. And, of course, we don't agree with all that the Pythagorean philosopher said But today, we do recognize that almost everything in the created world can be expressed in a mathematical formula. All the sciences are math-based. Now, if numbers are truly so significant in God's great book of creation, we should not be surprised to see that numbers also have great significance when we come to God's other great book, the book of the Bible. Uh, wherever we find the characteristics of God in nature, we also find those same kind of characteristics expressed in the, the, the scriptures themselves. And this morning, uh, we're going to briefly consider 10 numbers that are, that are, uh, and their symbol, and their symbols or their symbolic meaning in scripture and how they can enhance our understanding of the book of Revelation. And you have to hold on to your seat because we're going to fly through this. Uh, I've tried to put this uh, up a couple of times on the screen so that you'll be able to uh, get it all. You'll, it'll come back up so you can see it again if you need to fill in your, your blanks there. But uh, let's begin with the number one. One refers to unity. It for, refers to primacy and independent existence. One of the great scriptures that tell us this is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now you think about that. The, the, The Trinity is a unity, one. And the Trinity, God, is prime. He's preeminent. 
And he's also self-existent. He exists apart from anything in creation. He is the self-existing one. So the Lord is one. That applies to us in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, There is one body, that's the church, and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You see, one speaks of unity, of primacy, of separate or independent existence. And it is used in the book of Revelation 68 times. Yes. Then we look at the word two or the number two. Two in the Bible means addition or increase. It's also associated with fellowship or support. One of those verses would be Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For even for if e- either of them falls, the one will lift, the, up, lift up his companion. Now, it also refers to confirmation and testimony. You know, in our parliamentary procedure, someone stands up and makes a motion, and someone says, well, I second that motion. That is, I confirm it. Two is the number of testimony. There are two testaments, the Old and the New Testament. God's great witness to humanity. It's confirmed one with the other. John eight seventeen says, it is written in the law, the testimony of two men is true. And Mark 6, 7 says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two and two. Why did he do that? That they might confirm one another's testimony. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 4, there are two angels at the tomb when Jesus was resurrected to confirm that he is risen indeed. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 10 on the Mount of Olivet, the Mount of Ascension, there are two angels that confirm that Jesus is going to come again just as he is ascended into heaven. And in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3, he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses... And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. In other words, during that time of tribulation, God is going to have a witness, a testimony, and it will be confirmed by two witnesses in that time. Two means addition. It means fellowship, confirmation, or testimony. And it's used 11 times in the book of Revelation. We come to the number three. Three is the number of divinity. It's, it's, the, it's a sacred number. It's a number that of completion or wholeness. You know, the simplest compound figure in geometry is a triangle. An equilateral triangle is indivisible and unresolvable into anything else. And in a similar way, the expression of God is Three, we know God as a trinity. We know him as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God in three persons. Jesus tells us to baptize those who believe in him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the number three is a symbol of the divine, a complete and ordered whole. The sanctuary of God 
the dwelling place of God, was a perfect cube, length, breadth, and depth, all the same. New Jerusalem is also a perfect cube. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a, a heaven, an earth, and a sea. There is morning, noon, and night. There is right, middle, and left. There is knowledge, action, and experience. There is body, soul, and spirit. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is a threefold benediction of, of Israel in, in Numbers 6.24. The Lord bless you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Isaiah 6, chapter 6 and verse 3, there's a threefold invocation of the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Psalm 57, 15 says, well, 17 says, evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he will hear my voice. In Exodus 29, there's a confirmation of the priest and in Leviticus 14, there's a cleansing of the leper by the blood of the sacrifice of atonement. Blood was placed three times on the right lobe of the ear, three times on the right thumb, and three times on the great toe of the right foot. And it's a picture of a person consecrated, set aside for God. Three is the number of God. And of course, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. Three was used 11 times in the book of Revelation. We come to the number four. Four is the number of the world. It's the number of creation. It's the number of of completeness and universality. There are four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. There are four points on the compass, north, south, east, and west. In the book of Ezekiel, there are four living creatures. They have four faces, four sides, and four wheels which, upon which they move in addition to four wings. Uh, Ezekiel is expressing by number and by symbol God's creation and his providence over it. And similarly, in, in the book of Revelation chapter 4, there are four living creatures that symbolize creation bowing down before God in worship. In Matthew 13, there, there's the, the parable of the sower. There are four kinds of soul representing all the kinds of people in the world when it comes to the understanding or response to the gospel. All the people that God have created. In Revelation chapter 7, in verse 1, he says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Four is the number of the world. In Daniel, the four beasts which correspond to the kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream represent the nature of the Gentile world powers of the earth. In Revelation chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse sum up the destructive powers of the world at war. It's also a representation of the people who live in the world. It's the first number that can be divided by two. In other words, it's a number that can be broken. And it symbolizes the weakness, the weakness of creation in contrast to the creator. It's a symbol of, of failure. The book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Pentateuch, which is a type of the, our trial in the wilderness of this world. We, we go through a wandering, as it were, in this world. And when any number is multiplied by 10, 
it carries through the same meaning of that number, only it intensifies it. And in the case of this case, four, it, the number would be 40. See, 40 in the Bible refers to trial and testing on the earth. In the days of Noah, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. While Moses was on the mountain receiving the law for 40 days and 40 nights, the people were down below building an an idol of of a golden calf. Uh, Later, they had to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. Jonah came preaching, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the Lord Jesus was driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tested for 40 days. Four is the number of the world. It's the world, the number of creation. It's the number of, 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 of weakness, of trial, and of testing. And it's used 19 times in the book of Revelation. I hope you begin to see that these numbers are not, not just um, arbitrary, that they're not far-fetched, that they really have a significance in symbolic meaning. Let's consider 5 and 10. The, the decimal system originated by counting our fingers and our toes. You have five fingers on each hand, a total of ten. The same is true for the, the toes. And that became the basis of the decimal system. Ten symbolizes the whole. So if in those ancient days, if you had all ten fingers and ten toes, you were considered to be whole. And that was one of the requirements in order to be a priest. You had to be whole. That is, you had to have all your digits. You couldn't be, have any uh, imperfections in that way. So, so five, double to ten, stands for human completeness. In Leviticus 27.30, it says, the tithe is the Lord's. You say, what's a tithe? Well, it's a tenth part of the whole. So if you have 10 apples, one belongs to the Lord. If you have $10, one belongs to the Lord. And giving a tithe symbolizes the recognition that God is the owner of the whole. He's the owner of it all. And we acknowledge that by giving a, a part, a tenth, which is symbolic of the whole. We give all. All that we have is, should be available to the Lord. And so The whole duty of man is summed up in ten commandments. Not nine, not eleven, but ten. And the picture of complete, the complete power of human government would be a beast with ten horns. Horns means power. And like you find in Revelation 13. In Daniel 2, the great world empire in Nebuchadnezzar's vision stands on ten toes. In the ingenuity of God, ten represents human completeness. Now, but keep in mind that ten also intensifies any basic number. A hundred times ten, a thousand, equals ultimate completeness. And a, or a completion to the nth degree. We find this in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 16. It says, And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. Now in modern translations, they would tr- 
count, uh, say that's 200 uh, million. But raising the tens into millions indicates how immense this army was. And it shows the, the idea of, of multiplying thousands upon thousands into the millions. It's an immense army. Ten stands for intensity. In Genesis 31, Jacob complained to Laban that he had changed his wages ten times. What do you think that means? Ten times? In, in uh, Nehemiah 4, the discouraging Jews spoke to Nehemiah ten times. In Daniel 1, the king found Daniel and his, content, his companions ten times better than the others. You see, in other words, this is talking about how far we go, the completeness of this all. And in Revelation 2.10, Jesus said the church at Smyrna will have tribulation 10 days. That is intense tribulation and persecution, like the plagues in the book of, of Exodus. 10 stands for human completion in the world. In Matthew 25, there are 10 virgins that represent the entirety of humanity. The purpose of that parable is to tell, show the foolishness of being unprepared for the Lord coming. And you see, this is the, the whole of humanity needs to be ready for the coming of Christ. In Luke 15, there's a woman who has 10 pieces of, of silver. It represents all that she had. She lost one and she began to sweep the floor to try to find it. And in Genesis 18, it tells us that 10 righteous men would have saved Sodom. 10 stands for human completion in the world. And it intensifies other uh, numbers. It's used 12 times in the book of Revelation. Then we come to number 7. Seven is an especially significant number in the book of Revelation. It's used eight times in the very first chapter alone. And it's used 55 times throughout the book. In addition to that, you find the number seven used over 600 times throughout the Bible. It's a very significant number. It's a sacred number. Seven is the symbol of fullness and protection. And seven is is the symbol of this because it's composed of two other numbers that we've already looked at. It's composed of the number of God, which is the number three, And it's composed of the number four, which is the number of creation or the world. And so these, when these two numbers are added together, it gives you a picture of, of perfection, the fullness in all these ways. Seven is the earth crowned with heaven. You might think of it like this. Uh, The earth is the creation is, is it four? It's a, a box. Heaven, or uh, the number of God, is a triangle. It's three. And one is crown. The, the, the earth exhibits the character of heaven, and it shows it forth. Seven is God's perfect, full, complete number. There are seven days in each quarter of the moon. There are seven notes that make up our musical scale. And there are seven uses of seven. First, it's used, it has a sacred use. The sacredness of this number goes all the way back to the days of creation. And when the seventh day was set apart, sanctified, and became hallowed or honored, the, the seventh day, the Sabbath, 
it speaks of accomplishment. When God had finished all his work, he rested. And that's what that refers to. Then there's an ancient use. As far back as antiquity, in antiquity as we can go, as far back as archaeologists can dig, the, the number seven has been a sacred symbol. For example, in China, the great emperor divided his empire into seven provinces. He worshipped at seven altars. He offered seven sacrifices to the seven spirits. And he, when he died, he was put in a coffin on the seventh day. And then on the, in the seventh month, he was buried. The ancient Babylonians established the heart of their empire in a nation that was formerly Sumer, S-U-M-E-R. And uh, in the Sumerian language, the word Sumer means seven. The, the, in other words, these the, the Sumerians, not the Samaritans, but the Sumerians were the people of seven. They lived in the land of seven, and they drank seven up, if they had that back then. And, and, and when the Babylonians translated the Sumerian word Sumer, which means seven, they translated it in their word that means complete or all. They recognized that seven meant complete or all. So listen, seven gods in the thinking of the world is all gods. Uh, the seven-fold, seven-story towers of Babylon. They were seven stories. Why? Because it was representative of the universe, of all things. That's the way they, they looked at it. Seven was the expression of the highest power, and it was the greatest force. And in a similar way, the use of seven in the Bible symbolizes completeness, fullness, and perfection. So listen, when we read Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, we understand that he is not talking just to those seven churches, but that he is talking to all churches of all time. This is a message for us as well as for those people back in that day. And when Jesus says in Revelation 3 and verse 1 to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, he who has the seven spirits of God, we understand that this was Jesus' way of saying that he has the fullness of the spirit of God. John chapter 3 and verse 34 says, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That's what the seven spirits means, that he has the fullness of the Spirit of God. And in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, I, And I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Those seven horns represent his omnipotent power, and those seven eyes represent his omniscience, his, that he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, he is all-wise. And it's presented to us in symbolic form, beautifully, powerfully, telling us the nature of Jesus through seven horns and seven eyes. But it also had a ritual use. In Genesis 2, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, it was hallowed. In Exodus, an animal had to be seven days old before it could be sacrificed. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread was seven days long. In Leviticus, 
The circumcision of a child took place after the seventh day. There was a sevenfold sprinkling for purification. There was a sevenfold sprinkling of blood on the day of atonement. And there are seven days in the Feast of Tabernacle. In Zechariah, the golden lampstand has seven lights and seven branches. In, in 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman had to dip in the river Jordan seven times. Over and over we see this happening. It has a historical use. In Genesis 7, Noah enters the ark after seven days of grace. And then in chapter 8, we learn that it rested on Mount Ararat in the seventh month. Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel, and he bows down to Esau seven times. Pharaoh had a dream, and there were seven years of plenty, and there were seven years of famine. In Joshua uh, in 6, there are seven days and there are seven priests blowing seven trumpets seven times. And then they're walking around the, the city on the seventh day seven times, blowing the trumpets seven times. I mean, it's all seven, 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 seven. As many times you can say seven, it's all happening there. And then Judges speaks of Samson having seven locks of hair. The book of Kings and Solomon took seven years to build the temple. And then he observed the feast of dedication seven days. In 1 Kings, Elijah prays for seven times for rain, and seven times the servant ascends to the hill to look for it. In, in Daniel, there's the heating of the furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, seven times hotter. In Matthew, in, to John, there, is se- there are seven words from the cross. In Matthew 15, there are seven loaves that fed the 4,000, and there were seven baskets of fragments left over. In Mark 16, there are seven devils cast out of Mary Magdalene. And in Acts, they ordain seven deacons to the church in Jerusalem. It has a great historical use. It has a didactic use. In Psalm 12, 6, silver is purified seven times. That means it's purified to the ultimate degree. In Matthew 12, 45, the seven devils or seven evil spirits cover the man, that is that he is wholly given to evil. In Luke 17, 4, there is a sevenfold sin, a sevenfold repentance, and sevenfold forgiveness. In Matthew 13, there are seven parables of the seven of the kingdom, that is the presentation of the entire kingdom of God. And in Matthew 23, there are seven woes pronounced on the Pharisees, that is they are wholly or completely condemned. In the apostles' Uh, and the apostolic epistles and, and the following uh, heptads, that's the groups of seven. They're found in Romans, seven afflictions. In, uh, also in Romans, seven gifts. In James, there are seven qualities of heaven's, heaven's wisdom. And in Peter, there are seven virtues proceeding from faith over and over. I mean, we could go on and on with all these. There's an apocalyptic use. When you come to the book of Revelation, there are sevens. All over this book because it is the, it is the book of the consummation, it is the book of the end, it is the book of the completion of everything. So sevens naturally are everywhere. There are seven churches represented by seven lampstands. There are seven stars representing the seven angels. There are seven, uh, and, uh, and of the seven churches. There are seven lamps representing the seven spirits of God. There's a seven sealed book representing the fact that it is securely and completely sealed. 
The lamb, there's a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. There, there are seven angels that blow seven trumpets. There are seven angels that pour out seven bowls of wrath, picturing that the, the wrath of God is poured out absolutely and completely. There are seven thunders that are voices. The, the beast comes out of the sea with seven heads. The dragon has seven heads and seven crowns on his head. There are seven mountains, seven kings. And need I go on, there are sevens everywhere. And, and it's, it also has an intensified use, which is pretty fascinating. Not only are, does the number seven have significance in itself, but it also extends to its multiples and to its divisions. Seven times seven is 49. If you multiply the perfect number by the perfect number, you get 49. Pentecost was, was 49 days from Passover, right? And 49 days or seven sevens. And in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee is 49 years, seven times seven, and then the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. And when you multiply seven times 10, obviously you get 70, which is a, a, a greater intensification of seven. 70 was used of people. Remember when Jacob went down to Egypt? He had 70 people in his family, picturing the entirety of that what existed of Israel at that time. Uh, when Ezekiel saw the adulterous elders practicing idolatry, he saw 70, showing that the entire nation was engulfed in idolatry. Now, there are 70 members of the Sanhedrin, and the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek is called the Septuagint, which means the 70. And when the Lord sent out his people to preach, he sent out 70. And 70 is used of periods. In Daniel 9.24, there are 70 weeks of 70 periods of seven years that cover the entire history of the Jewish people from the time that Daniel was speaking until the consummation of the end of the age. It's, it's given to us in 49 weeks. We'll talk about that in greater detail as we go through the book of Revelation. In Psalm 10, uh, 90, 10, the lifespan of a person is pictured as being 70 Years. In other words, the full or the complete life of a person, 70 years, and anything after that is, is trial and sorrow. And Matthew 18, 22, Jesus says, we are to forgive those who sin against us 70 times 7, expressing the unlimited forgiveness that we are to extend to people. And the perfect number, 7, cut in half or divided, is three and a half. That is the incomplete number, the imperfect. It's often associated with disaster or distress. Three and a half is sometimes called 42 months. Sometimes it's called 1,260 days. And sometimes it's called times, times, and a half a time, or a dividing of times. All those things mean three and a half. In James chapter 5, it says that Elijah prayed that it might not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. There was there were drought for that time. Daniel seven twenty five, and they 
the saints shall be given into his hand until a time and times and a dividing of times. And you see it's a disastrous time, three and a half years. Daniel nine twenty seven, And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, that in the middle of that seven, group of seven of weeks, he will put a stop to the sacrifice. Three and a half years. And... Revelation 11.3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sacrifice. Two are prophesying, confirming their witness, and they will prophesy in a time of tribulation for three and a half years. Revelation 12, verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Again, three and a half years. Uh, Revelation twelve fourteen. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that, they, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she would be nourished for a time and times and half a time from, from the presence of the serpent. Again, you see how it's always connected here with adversity, with trial, with difficulty, these three and a half years. All those numbers are, are symbolic and they have profound meaning. It's not arbitrary. It is not subjective. It is not far-fetched, but it reflects the genius of the mind of God. These numbers present things to us in a powerful way, in a dramatic way, in a way that you can't just say outwardly. And that's, that's why I took the time to prepare this study, because I think we need to understand that this really does have great significance. Let's look at two more numbers. Let's look at number 12. 12 is made up of the same, same factors as 7. Whereas in 12... Or, or in 7, they are, they are added. In 12, they are multiplied. And when you take the number of God and the number of the world, perfect numbers, you come up with the number of salvation. In other words, 12 reflects the sovereign work of God in the world in bringing about salvation. It often implies the idea of God using other people. There were 12 tribes of Israel that were supposed to take the, the truth about God to the world. There were 12 apostles that were to evangelize the world. And so what we, we, we see in, with 12 is it's a, it's a manifestation of God's saving work in the world, the revelation of his saving purposes. 12 also can symbolize uh, organized religion, uh, the carrying out of, of duty Sanctioned by God's divine election. In other words, we, we, you, God has a purpose. God has it organized. God has things that we are supposed to do in order to be able to carry out the plan of salvation in the world. So the, if you think about it, there were 12 pillars set up by Moses. 12 jewels in the breastplate of the high priest. 12 uh, sh- uh, loaves of showbread before the Lord, 12 stones set up in the bed of the Jordan River when they crossed on dry gl- ground. Elijah made an altar of 12 unhewn stones. There were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. There were 12 stars in the crown of the radiant woman in Revelation 12. In the New 
Jerusalem, there are 12 gates of solid pearl, 12 foundations, 12,000 furlongs measuring the cube, and 12 kinds of fruit from the tree of life. So you see, New Jerusalem is, the, is characterized by the number of 12, and it reflects God's sovereign salvation for the world. Revelation 4.4 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders. 24, you say, what are they? Well, that's 12 plus 12. And, and t- the, the first 12 are the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the redeemed people of the Old Testament. And the last 12 are the 12 apostles representing the 12, uh, all the redeemed of the New Testament. And so what do we have? We have the redeemed of the Old Testament, the redeemed of the New Testament. We have them coming together, bowing down, giving God praise for his salvation in the world. It's an incredible thing. Revelation 7, 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. That's 12 times 12 times 10. 144,000, these are the people that belong to God. And what is their purpose during this time? Their purpose is to go and to take the gospel to a broken world. 12... And that's the intensification of it. And we are to take the gospel to a lost world. Final number, six. You know, seven is the, the number of God, the sacred number, the perfect number. When you put four and three together, you have creation crowned with heaven. Seven's that sacred number, but when you come to six, you come up short. Six is the number of shortcoming. Six is the number of man. And man was created on the sixth day. His work week is six days. The Hebrew slave served for six years. The darkest hour immediately before the dawn, sixth hour. The darkest years before the millennial Sabbath. And so the number six immediately precedes the perfect number seven. Our Lord was crucified on the sixth day. And darkness fell upon the earth in the sixth hour. God laid upon Jesus all the sin of humanity in that hour. First Samuel 17 tells us that Goliath's height was six cubits. His armor weighed, his, his mail coat 600 shekels of iron. And that giant of his race had six fingers and six toes. In Daniel 3, the golden image that of Nebuchadnezzar was 60 cubits high and six cubits broad. And at last we come to the most famous number in the Bible. Revelation thirteen eighteen. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Six hundreds, six tens, six units. Intensified to the nth degree. 
666. That's evil in its greatest capacity. That's what that represents. Evil in its full capacity. And you see, what we're talking about is we're talking about people, men, who want to ascend to the place of God, but always come up short, even when they are able to to muster together all the resources of humanity, all the resources of the world, they, and exalt themselves to the pinnacle of humanity, they still always come up short of being God. They like to present themselves as being God, but they cannot. It's, it's weak humans trying to usurp the throne of God. It's a world without God. Six, six, six. And can I tell you that every person in this room was born into this world with six, six, six tattooed on your forehead? Do you know what that means? That means that every person has in their heart a desire to take the place of God, to rule their own life, to be in control. That's what sin is. Sin is a desire to to be the ruler, to be the God of your own life. That's, That's all that it is. And it can express itself in all kinds of ways, but every one of us want to do that. That's the number of you and me. Yes, there's coming a an antichrist. Yes, there's coming a man of sin. Yes, that's going to happen. A friend, in your own life right now, you've got to deal with the 666 in your own life. Your own rebellion against God. But you know what the book of Revelation is all about? It's all about the fact that Jesus Christ overcomes all of that. And that when we submit ourselves to him, when we fall under his dominion, his kingdom, we come into his kingdom, then we have all that he has. We inherit all that he has. We have the hope. We have the assurance. We have the confidence for the future because of who he is. And that's really what God calls us to do. That's why God shows us all this stuff. So that we might understand that ultimately the way of, of real life and real hope is to give ourselves fully and completely to Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus did take upon himself all your sin, all your shortcoming. And he suffered and he died and he was buried, but then he arose. He is greater than all creation. He is greater than all sin. He is greater than death. And he is alive And he is coming again to rule and reign in this world. And we can come with him if we know him. And I would ask you, do you know him? Do you have a real relationship with God? Are you still hanging on to your six? Are you still trying to keep the control of your life? Let's pray.
Our Father, we are amazed at your, at your mind, at your wisdom, at your creativity. Everything that is came from you. All thought, all processes, all math, everything, everything came from you, God. You are incredible, God. And though you created us initially without sin, God, we, we sought to turn from you and to exalt ourselves and to take control. God, forgive us for that. And ever since Adam and Eve, Lord, we've been fighting that battle. And I know that even this morning there are people that are fighting that battle. And I ask you, God, to have your mercy, show your mercy and grace upon their lives. I pray that you grant to them to be able to surrender to you, to turn their hearts back to you and let you have control and to trust you in this world with eternal life. I pray for the, I pray for the people that today are struggling, that are battling the, the trials and the difficulties of this life, that we're, we're there in that place. God, give us the renewed encouragement that you really are in charge, that we really do win in the end with you. And we pray that you give us your perseverance and your grace in this hour. But I, I pray for those that are, are hurting because of physical pain or fears or uncertainty. God, may they know your great peace today, that you are all-knowing, you know all things, that you have all things in your hands. Oh, God, thank you for being such a great and marvelous God. May our hearts respond to you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to, as we sing this final song, I want you to have an opportunity just to, to respond to this marvelous and wonderful God. Maybe today you say, I, I really, I just want to put my trust in Jesus Christ. I want to be a follower of him. I'm putting, throwing aside my six and I want to pick up his seven this morning. Maybe you'd like to say, you say, you know, hey, we'd just really like to become a part of the family of God here.